Hello, this is Pursuit of Spark. I'm Julie Burstein. About a year ago, I was on a panel with the photographer Joel Meyerowitz. I've written about him in my book, Spark. And before we went on stage, Joel began to tell me about a new project he'd embarked upon, this time a collaboration with his wife, Maggie Barrett. She's a writer, and they were working together on a book about the seasons in Provence. What Joel said to me was that through this work with Maggie, he said, I'm falling more deeply in love with her than I've ever been, and we've been together for more than 20 years. I was, of course, captivated by this story, and so I asked if I could come and speak to the two of them about the work they were doing together. We sat down in their lovely apartment, which doubles as Joel's studio and Maggie's office, And it was just after they'd finished the very challenging work of editing down some 80,000 words to 8,000 words and thousands of photographs down to just a few for the book, a couple of hundred. In this conversation, we get to hear Maggie and Joel talk about the challenges and the pleasures of their creative collaboration, as well as about the momentous change they've undertaken in their lives to let go of a beloved home on Cape Cod so that they could begin a new chapter in their life together, unburdened by debt, able to fly the coop, which is what they've named their wonderful blog. Joel also talks about the experience of revisiting 50 years as a photographer in order to put together his retrospective for a book that was just published by Faden. I am so inspired by Joel Meyerowitz and Maggie Barrett, Let's listen as Joel begins by talking about their work together in Provence. Hmm, well, it has deepened our relationship in in ways beyond what I might have expected at the beginning, because that was just a projection of what it could be like. But in fact, we were, well, we had one, we had a start already in the springtime, and we watched spring come into being. And I think that that, um, period of being in nature and being with each other and witnessing and sharing a conversation about the unfolding of the time of springtime was part of what enriched our our way of communicating. And I think when you communicate, that's your relationship right there. If you fail to communicate, you don't have a relationship. So I think that that's what deepened it for me, was that we were on a, a parallel wavelength Witnessing this time separately, but yet unified in some uh, indescribable way. Yeah, that's interesting when you say about um, experiencing it separately and yet doing something together. I think what made this experience special for me, it differed from the previous book that we had done together for Tuscany in that I was sort of invited to write an um, introduction for that book I wasn't invited in as an equal artist and although I decided to write more and then if Barnes and Noble wanted it fine and if not I'd write their introduction there was a sense for me personally and it had nothing to do with what Joel was projecting that I was trying to prove myself as an equal in some way and so although when we made the Tuscany book we responded to 
the same things in the landscape and stopped, there was a pressure I felt on me to make sure that my voice was individual and yet still would marry with what Joel was doing. With this project, we were 10 years further along in our relationship. I believed in myself more than I did then. And we were also invited to do this book as equals. We were you know, given equal billing. So right from the beginning, I was able to um, experience, have my own experience of Provence, yet knowing that Joel was in some way side by side with it. I didn't feel necessarily linked to what it was that he was describing. I was, I was free to experience the entire day and then at the end of the day let surface what was important to me. So it was a very different process putting then the photographs and the text together because the text really wasn't describing the photographs. Both of you talk about something that I think happens in all relationships, but was was really deep with this experience, which is there's always that third thing that you, the two of you can look at and talk about together, which I think is really essential in a, in a relationship because then you're not always mm-hmm. looking at each other. You can each look at something else and bring something mm-hmm. to the other mm-hmm. person. Um, I'm sure you've done that over the years in your life together, but here you were doing it in your work together too. Did it change the conversation? And now I see you work and live in the same place. So did it change the conversation at home too? Yeah, it it did. I mean, I'll keep my remarks towards the, the work of it because it spreads into our life. I mean, they both... It's like the tide. It comes back and forth, always serving the other part. But we were living the experience. We weren't just going out and documenting it in an abstract way. We were in it in a very metaphysical way. And I think that experiencing life as we did in, in, in the, the joyous component of being in a foreign country without speaking the language, the, the adventure of that, and, and discovering what it was that had its verity, no matter where we were. Things will speak to each of us individually, and then through us as a unity, we had a sense of who we were in this place and how this place affected us. So it was a kind of circularity of nourishment that I think promoted a kind of dialogue between us about understanding what is understanding you know how are we understanding this strange phenomenon of provence and what does it mean to us as as partners and as human beings and as creative artists in this regard and and so that conversation going deeper into our personal lives uh, i i think joined us together in a very special way I agree, and I think also an important part of this process with with this particular book was that it didn't start off easily. First of all, we were letting go of this house on Cape Cod, which, although we knew it was the right decision, was nonetheless wrenching. And I think 
At our ages, one tends to cling to what one has. So letting go of something big and leaping into a new place where, as Joel says, we had no language. I mean, our French is abominable. We did not know Provence at all. And we were also bringing our love of Tuscany to it, which was easy for us. Tuscany is easy for us. We know what we connect to. So those first few weeks in, in Provence were really, we, we would look at each other sometimes like, it's like, where is Provence? You know, what are we missing? What's the big deal here? Where's the landscape? You know, and there was like a little maybe frisson of terror because we had a book to make, you know. So part of our conversation was allowing ourselves to have that discomfort and and begin to understand what that discomfort was on a deeper level, which is that unfamiliarity, as much as we all think we want to experience the new, actually is disturbing. And the other piece of, of the Provence journey was it's not all beautiful, you know. Sorry, but it's not. There's suburbia there and, and urbanism and ugly buildings and you have to be willing to persevere to get to what it is that's going to move you and it always was there eventually so our journey was one of of being able to say god this sucks (laughs) and then but what can we do to open ourselves up to what is here And then gradually finding it. So there was always the same sort of circle over and over of kind Mm -hmm. of irk to, wow, Mm -hmm. that's it, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that that actually applies to relationship, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, we have a great marriage. We do. But there's still, I like to say that it's 90% fantastic and the other 10% sucks wahoonie. And it's important to be able to accept that because it only makes then what's good even richer. I wonder, is that true for for you when you're creating anything? That there's often that sense of, I don't know what I'm doing here and I'm not sure there's anything here to do in order to get to what it is you need to do. Yeah, I, I'm. I I would agree with that. It's there's the 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 wonder of of um, the endless possibilities that you're faced with when you walk into a new environment, whether it's Provence or Ground Zero or anywhere. It's astonishing that there's so much plenitude and there's just little old you, and and do you have the openness of heart and mind and spirit and welcoming to actually embrace this or are you're going to be defensive and and just you know pick and choose things that one already knows and i i think that as as bold as we felt we were as we stepped into provence we also had the fear that this is so big i mean it's 100,000 square miles or something like that how are we going to cover all of it and then what what happens over a short period of time is the vastness falls away because you're dealing only with the specific, what's right in front of you, because you can only be where you are at any given day and who you are. And I think that's where artists all return to, is a sense that, okay, I'll breathe this in. I'm, I'm just here now. What's happening right here? 
And so I think mind is a big, um, um, a f it's a fulcrum that gives you this seesaw of I can't and, and it's impossible and wait a second, you know, let's reevaluate this. And I think that rocking like that until one finds equilibrium is what the artistic process is about. And I don't think I've ever said it uh, like that before, but I'm thinking precisely about this issue of, of the wonder of the immensity of possibilities and the singularity and, and puniness of the individual and how we try to fit it all together. And I think it's in acceptance that the fit begins to feel better and better until you are in the, the language of the experience and it speaks to you and you respond to it, call and response. You know, you think it's... Yeah, I do. I think it's very interesting. I mean, when I listen to Joel talk, I'm aware of what I've learned from him or what I'm still trying to learn. Joel is a yes person. He doesn't question his artistic instincts. If one comes up, he, he just goes for it. And I mean, there have been some along the way that when he mentioned them, I thought, oh, that's a bit boring, you know. Um, but when, you know, but then he would do it and it was like, oh, that's not boring at all. I tend, I tend to be a yes person, but it's followed pretty quickly by a no. Yeah. And the no for much of my life paralyzed me. And I used various things things to get rid of the no, like alcohol and drugs and so on, to re-liberate myself. I, don't, I haven't done that for more than two decades. But I find that, I, that I, I have an idea, and then the next thing that comes up is, oh, no, I couldn't possibly do that. And what I've learned is to say yes to the no. And if I can allow myself to say no, then I can explore what is my crazy thinking behind that no. And, and it always, of course, has to do with fear that I won't be good enough for, for my own idea. Can you imagine? Um, so once I get to that place and sort of talk that through, then I've, I've cleared the space again and then I'm open. And I think that when you get to that place of openness... As an artist, and Joel was just referring to it in his way, it's the most exciting place to be because you no longer own your creativity. You become the vessel that something can come through. So you, you both are in it and distant from it at the same time. It's, it's sort of like performing on stage. You're both in the role and you're observing yourself in the role. And I love, it's what I call being in the pocket. Hmm. I, I love that experience. I just want to add that you know, if photography is very much the same action, there's a quality of dispassionate observation that photography engenders, at, at least for myself. Although I'm heated up and excited when I see something or, or when I recognize that something is unfolding that's calling out to me that I can pay attention to. At the same time, there's, I cannot affect that in any way. I have to just be the receiver of these generated energies that are out there. And photography is perfectly mated to it because in an instant you can press the button, and you can hold on to the, the um, evolution 
of that experience that you see unfolding in front of you. And it's, it's a, a allowed me to step back and to be this kind of dispassionate observer while being passionately observant. <laughs> I mean, it's a funny dichotomy, but it's in there. And I think if you don't have that passion, something is stilled and, and the work becomes... Uh, I don't know, doc, pure documentary or something like that. And it, it, it has a different purpose. But I think if you're an artist and you're trying to live in the world at that moment and celebrate it, for me there's a joy, even in seeing things of, I don't mean to say a tragic nature, but the reality of everyday life is filled with all of these nuances. And yet the joy of being alive is is how one is where I respond from. Mm. So how do you deal with those two things? That's so true. Mm. And I don't always respond from that place. Mm. You know, hearing both of you, I think for so many people, there are both of those impulses. There's that impulse to just take in what's out there. And then I know it's true for me. It's true for so many people. I know there's that, then that second voice saying, oh, no, 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 you can't do this. Um, what is fascinating to me about the way that you work together is you have to open yourself up to what you're experiencing in order to capture it, both in terms of the photographs and in terms of the impressions that you take home. And then comes the work of figuring out what's the story you're going to tell with all of these things that you've gathered. What is that process like for you? both individually as artists and then to tell a story with the pictures and the words. Mm. I, I think it was an extraordinarily new experience for me. I've always been a solitary in terms of making for photographs. It's something you do on your own. But joining together with Maggie to do this book, we realized over time, or I'll speak for myself, I realized that we were making a book about us. It just took place in Provence, but it really was about the, the, the discovery of the connections that we had with each other and the place, the landscape or the quality of a day or the mood of time. What, whatever the shape of experience was in that day, we were sifting that together through a kind of common medium which is our knowledge of each other. And so we were reflecting back and forth these, these things that um, move us together. And, and I think the, the thing that I learned most uh, about the Provence experience is that I can collaborate, in this case with Maggie, in a way that I had never experienced with any other person in the time that I've, you know, been working as an artist for 50 years. This was a union and a unity and a communion. I think the communion aspect was something that happened between us in the place that it was. And so I, I think these resonances of a, a larger reality that we could participate in was what we were getting, it's what I was getting, out, out of the experience. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think I think that our approaches 
are different. But what we've learned all these years together is that our sensibilities are almost identical. We both respond to similar things. Um, so there was a freedom in working together. I didn't have to think, oh, if I write about this, will, will Joel have taken photographs that, and, and vice versa? To me, the storytelling is a great question that you ask because the Tuscany book didn't tell a story. It, they were sort of isolated moments and moments of reflection, and it worked for what it was. But I felt right from the beginning that we had an opportunity to tell a story. It was somewhat limited because it was, after all, a commission. I would have made it, I think, uh, more personal if it had just been us doing it for, for ourselves. But nonetheless, I saw that there was a story of discovery possible, um, that we were going into an unknown. And I saw it as being an adventure story, you know, and, um, and, and what calamities happen along the way, like, you know, Joel burnt his hand and I stubbed my toe and, and this landscape didn't appeal to us and we don't like it here. And then suddenly one day a ray of light literally, you know, illuminating the land and us and the adventure began. And then it became a process of peeling it away and going deeper and deeper so that you, I think you see throughout this book a real arc of an adventure that two old codgers <laughs> took in a new place. And um, yeah, the freedom of not having to worry about how to marry the text and image because you don't want the, you don't want the images to be dependent on the text or vice versa. You want each thing to stand. If, if you were to take the text out, this would be a beautiful book of photographs. And I think if you took the photographs out, it would be an interesting book of essays. But to make that third voice, you know, I never for a minute doubted that that would happen. No, and it's been interesting in, in, in to continue the answer to the question in making the book now reducing the thousands of photographs, and Maggie had 80,000 words, to get them down to 100 plus, more or less, photographs and 10,000 words was a, a, an extraordinary experience about what, you know, finding the balance. It's always finding what, what feels what like has it, weight. What has weight, what keeps the um, momentum going and the adventure and the storybook. When Maggie called it a storybook a few months ago, I realized, oh my God, it is a storybook. It's, but it's buried. The story is hidden in the text relating to the photographs so that if someone were to not just flip the pages and look at the pictures, but actually read what's going on. And Maggie did an interesting structural thing. She made the beginning essays quite minimal. They're only a paragraph or two, because she wanted to offset what she knew was a tendency of readers of photo books or coffee table books to look at the pictures and not bother with these essays. So by making them brief, she thought, well, if people get seduced into reading something because it's so <laughs> short, then maybe they'll pick up the rhythm and they'll stay with it. And then the essays get longer and longer as they go through the book. And I think that it works. I mean, having looked at it now so many times and reread it for proof typing, uh, uh, type, 
for typos, proofread, right? proofreading and typos <laughs> and everything. It, it just gets richer and richer and it embraces the reader more and brings you in and suddenly there's a kind of unity that is what we were hoping mm -hmm. for in the beginning, mm -hmm. but now it's being realized on the page. So there, there was also something else that was really interesting in the editing mm -hmm. prop because we did our editing separately to yeah. begin with. Oh. Mm -hmm. You know, Joel had thousands of photographs and I had thousands yeah. of words. So we, we decided that we would we would separate at the beginning. You, you work on yours, I'll work on mine so that we could find what was of value in our own work. Then you have to make it work together. And I think one of the beautiful things that happened in this process was that both of us were willing to let go of some of our darlings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, there were pieces of text that I really liked, but I felt it weighted the book not well. And there were certain photographs oh. that were stunning, but that if they were left out, it would make the text and the photographs come together more. So that we were both willing to let go of some of that. I think also you, ha you have to have a pretty strong relationship to not be competitive mm -hmm. about that. I mean, I'm yeah. very grateful Joel's not a writer. <laughs> 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 Although I shouldn't say that because actually he's a great writer. I'm not a great writer. I can, you know, I can say a few things. But, okay. No, go ahead. Well, it, you know, hearing the two of you talk, years ago we interviewed the architects Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown, who have lived and worked together for 50 years. And we asked, how do you do this? And Robert Venturi said, I think a lot about what T.S. Eliot said, which is that creating something is often the experience of putting something out there and then receiving a critique and going back and coming and coming back with, all right, I heard what you said. And Denise Scott Brown put it much more bluntly. She said, I'll say, have you thought about this? And he'll say, I can't do that. And then he'll go away and he'll come back the next day and say, you know what you said? Here's what I've done. And I wondered how it works for the two of you because, yeah. you know, Joel, you have written. Maggie, you've been an artist. Right. So it's interesting that you bring that to the collaboration I think too. Listening to criticism from wherever it comes is is vital to the creative process, mm -hmm. because if you if you start hearing the same criticism over and over, you know you really have to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. And you know, for my part, I have to then work with an with an editor from from the publishing company, and you know, you listen to the criticism and you weigh it, and sometimes you see right off the back, oh, you know what, they're right, and if I take that out, it's going to make this shine, you know, and then sometimes you say, no, sorry, that's mm -hmm. not my voice. Um, mm -hmm. What I'm trying to say here is more important than your particular value in this moment, and you have to have the courage to defend mm -hmm. yourself. But in the defending of yourself, you often then find a way to say what's being critiqued in a, in a deeper, clearer way. So it's always valuable, even if your first reaction is, you know, mm, you know, don't <laughs> yeah, you think? I, absolutely. And I think we've been, we've been lucky in the way we worked on this book together in the editing phase of it, in that... As Maggie said, she took her writing and I took my photographs and I laid them out in particular runs that I felt were satisfactory to me. But I shared them with Maggie and when she felt a hitch in something or it went on 
a couple of beats too long. She would say it clearly without feeling, you know, that she had to defend herself or protect me. She would just say, I, I, I think this should be shorter here, you know. And I would say, well, I'll try it. And I'll just take the picture out. And we'd do it and we'd page through it. And most of the time it was a, an appropriate observation. And I needed her take on it because I could trust that she came from the same experience that I did. We were there together and that her reading of the momentum was an, an important an important aspect of it and you know I mean we like to dance together and mm -hmm. we've danced since we met each other and and we know our moves and rhythms and things like that and a lot of interpretive kind of dancing too free form and so I trust that between us and that's hard to ask of some editor you know if I work with an editor what do they know about that experience that we had it's for them it might be page relationships oh you should have a big this next to a little that and that that's good for magazines perhaps if you're moving content quickly but it isn't good for a book that you hope people will be indwelling of. Mm -hmm. they will go into the experience not just one time if you build it the right way like a maze, a wonder, they will come back and read this book again a number of times because there's, there's a, a, a discovery p potential there, a path that will open up because the pictures are slowed down. We thought of our Tuscany as a slow book, and I think Provence is also a slow book. You're having this adventure with two people who treated it that way. It wasn't just a job or... A, a pure document about yeah. telling all of the assets of Provence. Our Provence doesn't really exist for, for you know, everywhere. It's a very limited view of Provence, but we think of it as the essential characteristics that spoke to us when we were there. That's all we could do. We could only be there and relate to what was happening when we were there. We can't manufacture something. I just wanted to say one more thing about the editing process because Joel is my first editor always. Everything that I write, and it was the same in Provence, I would do my writing for the day and in the evening after dinner I would read it to Joel. Everything I write, I read to Joel. Hmm. And it's very important for writers to hear their work out loud, especially if you're interested as I am in in talking to people so when I hear the work myself out loud I can see some glitches and Joel very often will say oh you know you said something back there that did that kind of stuck with me or I think if you left that last sentence off it would be stronger so really the first edit of my work comes in the reading out loud to Joel mm. which is which is pretty remarkable I think right and their brushstroke thing it's not about you know, I, I trust Maggie's voice, having heard it so consistently and lived with it. I trust her take on things. So only if there's a moment of excess or of you know, omission might I respond. But it's, it's really just a brushstroke. It isn't about the pushback or anything like that. In fact, I filmed Maggie a number of times just reading because I so loved the, the storytelling event <laughs> and she would sit there in some hotel room or in the car sometimes mm -hmm. or in the little place we rented and I just let the camera run and she would just read to me and the camera would suck it up and it's lovely to hear the freshness 
Now, after the work has been polished, to hear the raw freshness and see how Maggie has kept uh, a connection to that so that that immediacy of voice is still part of the encounter. Because, you know, you can polish it out of existence, mm -hmm. right? We all, we all know what editing can do. <clears throat> yeah, it's learning how to let what you've done go and say, it, I'm done mm -hmm. now, is one of the hardest things it's to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and especially because in that editing <clears throat> process, you're going through the work so many times mm -hmm. over and over and over that you do get to a point where you really don't know what you've got anymore. You know, and not only that, sometimes you think what you've got is basically crap. You know, it's like, really, I did all this work and this is the best I could come up with. As soon as I have that feeling, I now know that I need to take a break. I, and literally, like maybe three, four, five or, a, or days or a week away from it completely and then go back and read it afresh. And then I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised, mm -hmm. you know, but there always comes that moment in the work where you think, ugh. Mm -hmm. it, it, it happened to me last week in a big way. I've been working on this retrospective book for five, four, probably it's gotten dragged five, out. Five, six years. Five, at least <laughs> five years because I lost an editor along the way and then somebody else. And so finally we have a really good editor and we've been tailoring the book, and it's now pretty much done. I mean, it's done, really. And, and so last week they sent me a PDF of both of the volumes, because it's a two-volume, 600-picture book. And I started looking through it, and about halfway through the first volume, I found myself just enjoying the pacing and, and seeing the young man I was 50 years ago making pictures that were innocent and sweet and yearning and all of that. And, and I liked what I saw. And I, I realized suddenly that I was seeing the book. I wasn't looking for, do I have to change this piece of text? Should this order? Because every other interaction I had with them for the last few years has been about sequencing and, and all of the details. And now I was free to just look at it. And when I finished looking, it took me quite a while to do it, I realized I had said everything that I had hoped to say. And the mm. book was speaking. It was doing it. And I, I came and I told Maggie afterwards, I just had this astonishing experience where I was separate from the work, that it was a gift. And I didn't know that I, I could, I didn't um, plug it into my mind. Okay, I'm going to look at it now as if I was separate. <laughs> I just was looking at it and I was caught up in the stream of it and taken away by it. And I saw, I saw the work. What a great and, and I shared it with Maggie, and then later that night I wrote to the editor a little piece about what happened to me that day. And yesterday when I was working with her, she's in New York now, she said, I'm not there yet. She said, I'm still fixing and managing and everything. She said, I, I can't wait for the day when I can just see it for what it is. So that's you know, an end result of a long experience, and, and it's possible. And a long experience that's not just the four or five years that you've been working on this book, but the 50 years that you've been taking pictures. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And, and, you know, an, an, an accumulated mass like that has a life of its own only if you disentangle it from 
the boxes that it hides in and all of the categories one stores their work in. It, when you finally lay it out with a, some degree of honesty, and, and I, I proposed to myself early on that photography has been a gift in my life and that it's allowed me to be in the world and to recognize myself and the changes and the questions that have come up for me. So why shouldn't I honor that voyage through my life by posing the book as a bunch of questions that came up to me and showing the responses that weren't all successes. There were dead ends along the way, and there were pictures that were less than great photographs, but they were instructive pictures. They're the ones that were the tipping point or turning point that force you to encounter yourself and, and like that Richard Serra story of throwing everything in the Arno, they... These images might just be the point where you say, I have to let go of that. I'm, that's either not attainable or I'm done with it in one way or another. And you move on to the next void. And it's by entering the void willingly, fearlessly, that the next question poses itself. But you, but you have to be willing to go there. When I look at some contemporaries of mine, I see that they've been making the same picture for 30 or 40 years. They just do the same thing over, and I wonder, what does it take to either believe in that, and it, maybe that's an incredible gift, or is it a narrowness that is a detrimental characteristic? Because there's so much to explore. You're still yourself, you're carrying yourself with you everywhere you go, but you have facets. I mean, aren't we all rough-hewn in some way, and we just expose another facet and turn our, a different part of ourselves to the sun, and suddenly are, are, suddenly are benefited by that new exposure in some way. So I, I feel like that's what, that's what this journey was for me, was a real exposure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wanted to ask you one more question about this and the working together and then wanted to just, and I'm just looking at the time, I don't want to keep you for too long, but the tape machine is rolling, which is good. That's, that's if you see me looking over, it's just to make sure, is, is it still moving? Yes, it's still moving. I, I hear both of you talk about your work and I think for so many people who want to do creative work, as you were saying earlier, Maggie, it's that initial thing you get the idea and then you stop yourself. Have you had any thoughts of how people, as you say, can open themselves up to the world, which really is, is so central to creatively meeting life and work? Well, I think it's very mm -hmm. challenging today because most people are fixated on a very small screen, whether it's the phone, the Kindle, the computer, um, and I, I would say to everybody who is yearning to be creative, look up, <laughs> really look around you. Do not assume that what you saw yesterday is the same today, even if it's the same bus ride or the same walk to work, that the world is continually changing and filled with small gifts even right now. Well, right now, <laughs> yes. And instead of saying no to those things or closing them off before you've even checked them, check it out. My, my view is take everything in, 
Don't question it. Take it all in. At the end of the day, something will come to the surface that has meaning for you. And don't question it, which is it's interesting to hear myself say that because I always do question it. So, all right, so question it, but go forward anyway and maybe apply your question to that so that you can be continually making discoveries. For me, the creative quest is really about finding out who you are in relation to the world. And most of us want to find some fixed position that we can get comfortable with. You can't do that if you want to be creative. You have to be willing to be continually disturbed. It's so interesting to hear you talk about the collective experience of the day because that's your process. You're, you're saturating yourself with the impressions <clears throat> that, that um, layer themselves on top of you, layer after layer, and then you sift later on. For me as a photographer, it all depends upon the moment. Mm. It's the same collective because one collects many moments during the day, but the response has to be immediate. We're dealing with time. A camera has a thousandth of a second inscribed in it, and you can, in a thousandth of a second, make a decision to say yes to that thing. So it's the same collective for me in that I'm constantly, um, uh, through my optimistic and affirmative <laughs> personality, say, oh yeah, that too, I want that. I, yes, yes, yes. So I'm always saying yes to things, of course, there are many things that I'm not, I'm not paying attention to at all, but this, this intaking of, of all of the, the messages that the world emanates, and, and I think of myself as a kind of vibrating antenna that is just receiving these things, because I, I never thought of photography as a creative act. It's a, for me, it's always been a receptive act. So I have to have enough of a... Um, of a space in me that these things can be welcomed in and that I can be in, in, in some cyclical form always staying open to the possibility that something will present itself and align itself with whatever I am inside. My identity is reciprocal with things in the world and it's the alignment of these things that makes them feel like oh, that's me out there. So I'm identifying myself and collecting these particles that um, will form a kind of nucleus of my identity later on. Yeah, but it's interesting <clears throat> that you say that you don't think of yourself no. as a creative person, but as a receptive person, because I think that that is the basis of creativity, is re is. What's that word again? Receptivity. Receptivity. Um, and I think that, again, that, that requires an openness to the all of it, that which is discomforting as well as that which is exciting. And I, again, I know this may be a very biased view, but so much of what I see as conceptual art these days lacks interest to me because I don't see the receptivity. I see a sort of arbitrary, well, if I take this object and put it there and put a nude person over there and put a pink border around it, wow, that could be groovy. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, you could say that that's creativity, I suppose, but 
when I look at those works, they don't resonate with a with a connection. When I look at them and I say, mm. but but what are you telling me? Because we're really, as artists, describing ourselves. And the truth is that when people look at the creative work of an artist, they're as much wanting to know what the artist is about. And mm. only by having mm. opened yourself up and been, been fully receptive can you do that. So mm. I, I don't agree with you that you're not a creative person. I do think that you're highly receptive and that's why you're so creative. Okay. Did that, that actually shut you up for a minute, didn't it? <laughs> okay. Accept. I was thinking, too, as both of you were talking about the beautiful book that you showed me before Joel came of Cornwall mm. and the picture of, there's this picture at the end of the book of the photographs that you've taken of a cow. Mm. And you said, I learned this from Joel, which is, I see where this is going. If I just wait long enough something's going to happen. Yes. So waiting seems to be a big piece of this, too. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think of myself as being instantaneous because photography is instantaneous, but also knowing that a place is, um, is fulfilling some unknown desire of yours to be in this place. And by staying there, I sense myself opening up often. Ah, yeah, well, it, feel, it feels really good to be here. That's a form of waiting that doesn't have a catch-all um, anticipation of something happening there. It's just about waiting there. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean something will happen, but it means that I stand there and I experience myself standing there and the place and the smell and the light and the time and where I am. And its reality sort of permeates my being and it may be that it's that moment that readies me for the next recognition which going is going to come so waiting is really more participating in the the moment that you feel this aliveness you know it's it's in that sense it's about pure experience and so if we want to experience ourselves living we have to just be open in the present moment for that. And I, I know that sounds um, more like spiritual teachings, but in the fact, it's ordinary reality is to be con as connected as you possibly can be to a moment, to yourself in the moment, to the place you're at. That's just being alive. You know? I think that that's a really an interesting subject, the mm -hmm. waiting, um, because it's a very mm -hmm. fine line between waiting in the hope that something will just fall into your lap um, and waiting as an artist, which means being present. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was so exciting to me when I first met Joel was walking down streets with him. And in those days, he always had his Leica 35 millimeter slung over his shoulder with the lens in inward towards his body to protect it. But he would be, if the light changed, he constantly re readjusted the settings so that he was always prepared. And I would, and, and he has, had this wonderful movement where all of a sudden he, the camera would be up to his eye in, in a split second and a picture would have been taken. And it was always so shocking to me because I, I couldn't understand how did he know that that was going to happen? You know, I would be looking, so that I would 
when he would start that fast movement of reaching for the camera, I would start looking around to see what is he going to take? I would see nothing. But by the time the camera came to his eye, the incident would be happening. And that blew me away. That ability to be constantly waiting, but totally prepared was mm -hmm. just magic to me. And having a sense not just of the present, but the future. Right. Because there is that moment mm -hmm. between reaching for the camera and taking the picture That's that right. things change. The anticipation. You know, he would be seeing this person over there and that one over there and, and maybe a color in the middle that related to both of them. And in, that, in less than a second, his mind would have figured out that, oh, those two people are going to come together in front of that thing and it's going to make a photograph. Just phenomenal. Yeah, it's it, it's there's a quality of projection and anticipation that is the province of street photographers. I, I think of it as street photographers. Where, and you know, I used to talk about it with Gary Winogrand and Todd Papageorge and my buddies on the street. It's a sixth sense you develop that's about the dynamics and geometry of human life on a street. People are coming at you in the stream and you're just walking forward and you're reading. I'm reading. I'm reading the text of the street. And the text is open-ended. It doesn't start like literature on the upper left-hand corner and go by lines. It starts everywhere all at once simultaneously. And if you are moving through the crowd and taking note of all of this, or in other words, being alive to where you are in your situation. You don't have to be in the countryside to appreciate nature. Human nature is great on Fifth Avenue. You see it all, and it's easy to play a game in my mind and say, well, yeah, that guy carrying the plate glass is going to walk over there, and the guy carrying the flowers over here is going to come, and the kid on the tricycle, and you just see it all in, like, in slow motion. You know, I once... I'll digress for a moment because it's the same thing. I once spent a year photographing Joe DiMaggio for, for those who don't know who he was, he was a great Yankee baseball player. And um, he was a representative of the Bowery Savings Bank in a bunch of ads, and I took the pictures of the ads. So we saw each other a lot. And he was a very shy and, and retiring guy, and most people on the shoot stayed away from him. But I was a fan from childhood, and I just loved hanging out with him, and he trusted me. And we were talking, uh, as we did so many times, and one day we were talking about the year that he hit in 56 games consecutively. Every time he got up at bat, he, he would hit the ball. And I asked him, I was like, how did that happen? That's the record that's never been broken. And he said, I don't know. He said, I had this ability that year to slow things down and see everything. So when the ball left the pitcher's hand, he said it was in slow motion. It was moving through the air in, in little spurts coming towards me. He said, I could see the stitches on the ball as the ball was turning over. He said, and when it got to me, I put the bat in its way. <laughs> uh, uh, and I understood completely, because on the street, there's a, a, a potential read of the dynamics of the street that I, I, I sense when I'm out there reading it of 
slowing everything down so that I can see the trajectories of the passage of people and who might come in front of whom and how they're going to arrive at a place eight feet from me in a matter of moments. And I just keep walking into it more alert. And then when the moment of intersection comes, where I'm in the right place and the, and the flow has joined, I just put the camera in the way of it, and it gets <laughs> click. And, and I, I, I just think that's part of a kind of heightened sensitivity to the, the world around you that you feel connected to. It's not about getting to the next street corner so that you can beat the light. It's about walking through the space, embraced by everything, bathing in the space. It's, it's, a, it's a joyous experience. And frankly, for 50 years, I've been enjoying myself, reading the world, and learning what human beings' potential might be like. And sure, I'm wrong probably 95% of the time. But the few percentage points that I'm right and I'm equipped with my camera and I have, I have the, the desire to lift it, um, I snare things that make sense to me later on. Some sense. You know, and listening to you, and I just had never thought about it that way, that's part of what is extraordinary about your photographs is that when I look at them, I feel what's happened up till that moment and I imagine what will happen afterwards mm -hmm. and it's because you have captured in the stream of life this one moment but it's not fixed even though it is fixed it's mm -hmm. it's fixed but it has that idea that this isn't stopped it's just ah, this one yes. second it Isn't continues on beyond the frame i've always thought of photography continuing beyond the frame even though I put a frame around it, it isn't the end. It's only just a segment of this fluidity that's around me. I've always thought of it that way. Life continues on, and we clip off the edges, and, and because still photography does that, whereas film, film allows you movement with it. I mean, it's always one of the drawbacks of still photography, but it also is the essential gift of still photography. Well, I was going to say that the, the real gift there is that it allows whoever is standing in front of that photograph to then yeah. make up their own story, you know, yeah. so that they, they, without even knowing it, become a part of the creative process. I think that's exactly it. And that, you know, I've spent my life in radio and often people would say, why aren't you working in television? And I would say, because the pictures are so much better in radio than they are in television for exactly that, that it leaves me as a listener space to put myself exactly. in. It's like reading in that way, isn't it? You can create, I mean, the, the, the same living room that a writer describes will look different to every single person who reads it, just the same with radio. It's, I think, a really magical medium that allows people to have their own interior journey, which television and film don't. Yeah. I, I would like to... Um continue that thought for a moment because as as you both were saying that about the picture potential of radio I realized that I grew up in the last era before television and my childhood as I'm sure 
many people can share, was filled with all the serials, the radio serials, Mine you know, too. the Lone Ranger and and um, the Shadow and Grand Central Station and all the soap operas that my mother listened to. And as a kid, you know, I had to be in the house at five o'clock so I could hear my four programs between five and six, each 15 minutes long on WABC or in, in whatever the... the whatever the stations were, W-O-R. And, um, and of course, I was filled with the visuals of these things and all the sound effects, you know, the, the horses galloping, the storms blowing, the thunder and lightning, all of that stuff. And let's pretend on Saturday mornings. And so I was filled with a kind of visual environment that radio generated. And... I have no doubt that that influenced my life as a visual person because it was enriched by something that I had to manifest myself rather than seeing it on television with Howdy Doody or whatever was being beamed in those early years of the early 50s. So I, I had something that stimulated a kind of... Um, visioning, envisioning of the world. And, and maybe it's part of that nutrient cycle that allowed me to go into the world with that sense of wonder and anticipation, you know, the, the anticipated moment, right? Mm -hmm. This is such a pleasure mm, for us to too. speak to both of you. And the other thing I wanted to talk with you about, and I'm just looking at this photograph above your heads, which is so beautiful. Of that was our back, backyard on, in Provincetown. That's what I wanted to ask you about, is I know that this has been, in addition to a year of opening up and exploring, it's been a year of letting go, in that you had a house that you loved that you let go. And I wanted to ask you about... That it's now a few months, I guess, right. since the house sold. Um, but what mm. led to the decision to let it go and how you feel now? There were two things. One was practical. By selling the house, we could get completely out of debt. And we're at a moment in our lives where we don't want to have any regrets at not having done the things we've said we want to do. And when you're out of debt, you actually can do the things you want to do. Um, it may not be on a luxury scale, but you can do them. So there was a practical reason. The other reason which was equally important was, I like to say we made a paradise in hell. We had a little English cottage in a beautiful English garden that I made from a sandlot on the edge of the sea. When you walked in that garden gate, you felt that you'd entered a fairy story. Everybody felt that way. True. And in the early years, people went to that place, to not our place, but to that area, to enjoy the beauty of the bay and the serenity of it. Unfortunately, over the years, it became a party town, and people go there now to party. So if you were to pull the camera back from our little idyll, you would see that on three sides we were surrounded by close to, somewhere between 20 and 22 condo rental units on three sides. It had once been homes. Right, it had once <laughs> been all residential. And, that, and the changeover was every week and Saturdays would arrive and there'd be that wonderful period of three hours when the old renters left and you were waiting for the new ones to arrive when all was silent and beautiful. And you would just be wondering... 
who's coming next? Mm. And it became a place that was the opposite of serenity for us. And we kept making it more beautiful and more private in the hopes that we could change what was going on around us. It was a real lesson in humility for us that you really cannot change other people. And so you have to accept that if something's no longer working for you, no matter how beautiful the garden is or the bay is or the little cottage you've made, if you can't have the serenity that you want, you're going to have to walk away. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, it was a hard decision and a good decision. And now, four months after the house has closed, mm-hmm. I dream of the garden. I mean, literally, probably once a week or a couple of times a month, I have a dream of the garden. And there's a pang there. You know, life is about loss, too. And uh, I don't think that you have to make it all perfect in order for it to be good. Um, so that's And you can't are. make it all perfect. <laughs> and you can't. They're really, damn it, there's no such thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so we're grateful. I mean, we met there. Joel proposed over the garden gate to me there. We have all the memories intact our children visiting, our friends, and those things we carry with us for the rest of our lives. And I, I did a, a great amount of my work there. I, re, I discovered myself, a, a different version of myself on Cape Cod. And, and um, books that I've made there have been incredibly supportive of my life and, and uh, my ideas. So it was hard to leave in some ways for me because of the extended memories backwards. But in all honesty, it was no longer of that kind of creative interest to me. I I loved swimming there. I'm a a swimmer, so the water was my backyard and I was in it every day. But I can swim other places and it's part of the end game now. At, At my age, I think about whatever time I have left, I would like to experience whatever else is possible rather than the comfort of that routine of returning there every summer or whenever we chose to go. As comforting as it was, there was this other element that Maggie mentioned about the the disturbance. So it, it was very freeing to let go and to imagine myself in the world now as a free agent, untethered, to a single place and capable of putting on the mantle of any new place and experiencing myself and the place through that, that potential opening. And, and in fact, it, it, a, big, a big crossover occurred right at the same time as we decided to let go of this place. And that was a big decision in and of itself. But I felt that for the last 50 years, I viewed photography as my life. It was first. I was in the cart behind photography. It was pulling me along, and I was seeing everything thanks to photography, and I, I was devoted to it, and I was um, a servant of the medium. I thought of myself as a servant of the medium because when I began in the early 60s, photography was nowhere. It was really undiscovered territory. Even though it had been around for 100 years, it was relatively, in the art world, it was thought of as a craft. And so that kind of dismissiveness brought out in me a kind of proselytizing 
uh, um, <laughs> missionary idea. This is a great medium, and, and you all should be taking this seriously. So I found myself serving it. And last year, at a point in the spring, we were sitting on the beach, letting go of everything, and I said to Maggie, I just feel like I've crossed a line right now, and that from this point onward, photography is behind me, and my life is now forward. I'm, I'm on the horse now, not in the cart, and I'll have my camera with me, and photographs will come when they come, but it's my life now to be lived with Maggie, and we go forward together, and whatever comes of it, comes of it, but that's how I want to live the rest of the end game together. And you know, making that decision has been an incredibly liberating experience, and, and how did I get it backwards for so long? Not that I regret it, it served me incredibly well, but I, it's a matter of distinction and proportion, where you, where you place yourself in relation to the thing that you choose to do, or that has chosen you to, to be part of its you know, prophecy. So I, I just feel that that sale and that moment in time was a huge Free. turning point, and we're both, uh, speaking for myself, absolutely in, in a free place now that I am grateful to be in. Yeah, you have to choose your attachments well, is what I would say, mm -hmm. and be continually examining them, whether it's the clothes in your closet. You know, Have you worn them this year? Then do you need them? And, mm -hmm. and the same with the, with the house. In many ways, as much as it gave us pleasure, it also imprisoned us. You know, you had to be there all summer. The garden had to be tended. The roof had to be fixed. Mm. And, um, you know, not that that, if, if that's a really conscious choice and it's working for you, fine. But if it's something out of habit and you're afraid that by letting go of it, you know, nothing, nothing will replace it, then you're in trouble. And we made a decision when we let go of the, of the cape mm. that we would not fill the space with anything, that we would try to keep the space open to experience what space is like, unattached. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, it's really great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and, and what, just, just, to, just to add a point to that, we did a kind of biblical thing. When we left the house for the last time, we walked out of the garden gate, and we both agreed not to look back. We just walked right to the car, got in the car, we said thank you, and we drove away. I'd say that was that was momentous not to look back. Thank you both so much. Mm. Maggie Barrett, Joel Myrowitz, what a pleasure mm. to get a chance to you speak too, with you too. both. You too, <laughs> really. Thank you really so to much. Be here with you. Thank you. Oh, you've got me crying there oh. at the end. writer Maggie Barrett and photographer Joel Meyerowitz. They've just collaborated on a book called Provence, Lasting Impressions, which is available now. Joel's book, Taking My Time, a retrospective of his photography over the past 50 years, has also just been released by Faden. 
In this week's Work Mystery, Dick Nodell shares his thoughts about the wonderful relationship between these two marvelous artists. I hope you'll take a listen and want to thank you for listening to my conversation with Joel and Maggie. I'm Julie Burstein, and you've been listening to Pursuit of Spark. Spark.